They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favour of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. We're then going to start reading from the beginning of Acts chapter 6. So if you turn a couple of pages in your Bibles. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention and prayers to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Well, as you've heard, uh, last Sunday, we cast a vision for Grace Church, which is a city vision. We painted a picture of the future. Wouldn't it be glorious if Manchester was filled with communities of light? And we thought about how to be part of that. God's call on our lives is to be, in the words of Jesus, to be salt and light and to be a city on a hill. Salt means you, your life is distinctive from the world around. You have a different character internally a different attitude, a different lifestyle, one of radical holiness and love. Light means your, your life will be visible and distinctive. It'll be seen, not blending in like a chameleon, but shining out. And a city on a hill is an extension of that light image, extended to a whole community. The local church together becomes a unique place of safety and diversity and community, and it's visible. In other words, you don't have to be great. You just have to be godly, living a life of obedience to Jesus, love and prayer. You don't have to be clever or gifted. You just have to be visible as a Christian, an honest, plain witness. And you don't have to do it alone. You're part of a city called Grace Church. We're a family. We shine together. In the life of our community, people should experience the love and presence of God. But what does it actually look like? Let's get practical. Now, one of the greatest pictures of what a church should look like is found in Acts chapter 2. Perhaps it would come up on the screen, or you look at it in your Bible. This is the first Christian church. It was in Jerusalem, and it shows us the main characteristics of the Spirit-filled first church. The French reformer John Calvin wrote 450 years ago, Do we seek the church of Christ? The picture of it is here, painted to the life. This is a life portrait of the church. 
It's not a technical drawing showing how to put a church together. It's more like a YouTube video where you see the church in action just for a few minutes. John Stott, great uh, Christian leader of the last hundred years, says, It has been a salutary exercise, a healthy exercise, for the church of every century to compare itself with the church of the first and to seek to recapture something of its confidence, enthusiasm, vision, and power. Now, this text that's on the screen is actually also a very precious one in the history of our church. Fifteen years ago, this church was started. It was called The Plant. And this was one of the texts that became very foundational. And in fact, people, when we came ten years ago, would often say, the four things we always do, based on uh, Acts chapter 2. So let's return to it this morning and remind ourselves of what we're called to be and what it looks like. Two points. The beauty of community, the beauty of gospel community, and the challenge of gospel community. The beauty of gospel community and the challenge. Notice in Acts chapter 2 how community forms after the gospel has been preached. The first Christian sermon has just been preached. The Holy Spirit has descended upon the apostles like tongues of fire. And then Peter stands and boldly proclaims the message, the good news about Jesus. And the people are cut to the heart. They cry out, what must we do to be saved? And Peter says, repent, turn to God away from your old way of life. Be baptized, a sign of dying to your old self and being raised to a new way of life, a sign that shows you've come through God's judgment and out the other side because you're in Jesus. That's the gospel. And out of that gospel, what do we find? Straight away, community forms. Now notice, the very first church was a mega church and it's also made up of many household communities. Now this speaks to us about our preference for one size of church over another. Some prefer the the warmth and the intimacy of the small church. Others prefer the credibility, the quality, the programs, and the reach of the larger church. Does the Bible have a preference? No. In fact, the first Christian church was both large and small. Notice what it says. Uh, They devoted themselves to these things, that every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts, and they broke bread in their homes. All together and out in homes. Some people believe small is beautiful. It's church. They distrust big churches. Others believe big is beautiful. But what we see here is the thing that makes a church beautiful is not its size, but its community. Community is really beautiful. It was beautiful because this first church community devoted themselves to five things. You'll see four of them in that first verse. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to, literally, the prayers. Firstly, and by the way, these four things are the staple diet of the Christian church. Without them, you have a very weak, sickly Christianity, but with them, you can have a healthy, vigorous, strong Christianity. Firstly, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The first church was not focused on having mystical experiences. It was a learning church. It was a studying church. They listened to the apostles' teaching, and they devoted themselves to it to learn it and live it. So what was this teaching? Well, the apostles taught about Jesus Christ, his life, 
death, resurrection, ascension, his words and deeds. And they took that and they applied it to life. Where can we find this teaching? It's recorded for us in the New Testament. That is the apostles' teaching, authorized and enscripturated. It's set down for us for a permanent record in written form. So when we read the New Testament, we are reading the apostles' teaching. We also find, when we read the New Testament, that it is full of the Old Testament. It's saturated with the Old Testament. Direct quotations, allusions, echoes. Old Testament's everywhere in the New Testament, and that's because the apostles believed the Old Testament was God's word, and so did Jesus. So the apostles' teaching covers Old Testament and New Testament. True church community has a passionate emphasis on learning from the Bible and being in the Word. We must be devoted to that. Secondly, they were devoted to the fellowship, it says. Now, this word fellowship, koinonia, means a close relationship. It's actually used of marriage. Marriage is fellowship. It also involves sharing with other people on a deep level. In our culture, we associate fellowship with being friends with other people. And it can involve that. But in the modern church, it's not just limited to people you like, which friendship generally is. It's a close relationship of sharing with everybody who loves Jesus. That's unpacked in verse 44. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who have need. Now that is pretty extensive sharing, isn't it? Sell your stuff for the sake of the church. That's what fellowship looks like, deep sharing. And that's what we uh, require of Grace Church members, that they spend time together in small groups and share their lives one-to-one. Not to have high fences that surround our homes and surround our diaries, but to be together, to have things in common. Thirdly, they were devoted to the breaking of bread. They, it says later on, they ate together in their homes day by day. Why is sharing food so important in the Bible? Because there's nothing like it to deepen relationship. Sharing a meal with someone changes it from being a meeting to being a relationship. If a church meets together on Sunday, sings some songs, hears a sermon, prays, and then goes home and doesn't meet again until the following Sunday, that can only take that church so far. But if we commit to community to meet together over food during the week, things look very different. Now you find Christianity is not just for Sunday, it's for the whole of your life. Now you find that the bonds between us are strengthened and rich, like strong tendons and muscles holding a skeleton together. If we spend time together over food, we have an opportunity to deepen our community. That's why we try and eat together when we can at this church. Now, please understand the significance of what that means. We're building up the community life of Christ church. Thirdly, they were devoted to the prayers. You notice I've added a word in from the original Greek language, the prayers. Now, all prayer is important, but this is talking about prayer together. The prayers means the formal, joined together prayers of the whole church. This was a church that prayed together. A true church community must be a praying church. It's a high privilege to speak to the Father together. Jesus commands us to pray. The Holy Spirit helps us to pray. 
And nothing of spiritual depth will happen without prayer. And of course, you can't be devoted to prayers, if the prayers, if you're not regularly gathered together on a Sunday. So let me ask, is Sunday morning an absolute priority in your diary? Is it essential? If it's easily dislodged by weekends away, leisure activities, other life choices, what does that say about your devotion to God's people? You can be a church member, you can be an Orthodox Christian who knows their Bible, but you can do all that and not be really committed to church at all. How often do you miss Sunday morning? Our leadership team went on a retreat in February to pray for this church and plan for the next five years. We identified that corporate prayer altogether is a weakness at Grace Church. We don't pray together enough. We want to grow in that. So we're working on ways of integrating gathered prayer as a whole church. And I think exciting developments are ahead. Four aspects of the model church. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. And I said there were five. And you say, well, where's the fifth one? Well, it's not said clearly, but it is everywhere. And it's that they were devoted to sharing Jesus. Look at verse 47. Praising God and enjoying the favor of all the, all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Every day, people were being saved by God and joining that church. Now, it must mean, mustn't it, that they were speaking about Jesus often to other people. And we know from elsewhere in the book of Acts that that was the case. Everywhere they went, they shared and talked about Jesus. Not just the apostles, everyone. These early Christians spend a lot of time together, and yet non-Christians were joining their number every day. What must that mean? You might think that if Christians are spending a lot of time together, that they're being exclusive, and they won't have time for non-believing friends. Surely they were in a religious ghetto. But that's not the case in Acts 2. It's as if the more time they spend together in deep community, the more people are added. Now, how can that be the case? It must be the case that the early Christian community was porous, like limestone, not airtight, lots of ways in and out. It wasn't a ghetto, lots of open doors. It was very easy for non-Christian people to come in. That's the only way I can make sense of this. So if the early Christians met in a home, they didn't shut the door and whisper about Jesus and sing songs quietly. The door was open and non-Christians were present. If the early Christians had some friends around for dinner, there were Christian friends and non-believing friends. If the early Christians had a movie night, not that the cinema was invented, a game of football, not that football was invented, if they had a games night, went to the pub, had people around for coffee, there were Christians mixing with non-believers all the time. We have to avoid our community becoming a ghetto. People saw the community. They saw the life of it, they saw the gospel in action, and they wanted to join it. They heard about Jesus. So these people were devoted to these five essentials of the Christian life. The apostles' teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread, the prayers, and sharing Jesus. Devotion means you stick at it. Uh, you continue in it. You persevere in it, even when it's difficult. Not just in the initial excitement, they pressed on. And that church was a growing dynamic community how can churches be dynamic and growing in a sustained way countless books and blogs have ideas about this 
But the answer is not far to seek. You get to be a dynamic church under God by being devoted to these five things and doing them daily. And the Holy Spirit will bring the power. Day by day they did these things. Now I know many of you want to be part of a church like that. That's why you're here today. You want to be part of a vibrant church, a a place of deep and real community, a place that sees people come to real faith in Jesus. You want that. And that's why we need to make sure we are devoted to the right things. Your culture is pressing in on you, calling you to be devoted to all sorts of things, to be devoted to your leisure, to be devoted to the latest box set, to be devoted to having great meals out with friends, to be devoted to your children. And children are pretty full-time, aren't they? To be devoted to your football team, to be devoted to your work and your career, to be devoted to having wonderful holidays. And not all those things are good, by the way. But actually, we need to make sure we're devoted to the right things. And as life gets busier with every passing year, the important gets crowded out by the urgent or by merely distracting. So let us be committed this morning to be devoted to Christ's church. He is worth it. But there's another aspect to this kind of community that we need to be honest about in the second part of this sermon, which is as you go on in the Christian life, you experience more disappointment as well. You experience more disappointment from other Christians. People let you down. Churches let you down. And it's easy to get jaded and cynical and hurt and disillusioned. Some people reach the point where they say, church has failed me, so I'm done with church. A very good friend of mine from university joined a church plant in the center of Manchester. He said it was last chance saloon. And that church failed after a few years and then he left the church. And his community was based around a rugby club. We can be disappointed. And when you hear about people's experiences sometimes, you can't help but have sympathy with them. Does it have to be like that? Acts is realistic as well as gloriously hopeful. So the second thing we see in Acts, our second reading is from Acts 6, the challenge of gospel community. We thought about the beauty of it, we're thinking about the challenge. Yeah, it's a new kind of community. Yes, it's beautiful, but it is not heaven on earth. And it has real problems and real tensions. So we see that church growth brings problems and tensions as well as opportunities. After all the buzz and the glory of chapter 2, what do you expect to happen? Luke tells us the story as it really is here. As soon as the church starts to motor, it hits the choppy waters. A perfect storm of problems hit it in chapter 6, and it almost got turned over. John Stott calls Acts chapter 3 to 6 Satan's counterattack. He says that the Bible teaches us there's a devil, and he's very busy opposing Jesus, and he hates Jesus' church, and he's prowling around looking to devour it. And Satan has three strategies. Firstly, he tries to get the state and the authorities to coerce the church violently and oppressively. Secondly, he raises up a lying couple to corrupt the church. That's in chapter 4 and 5. But here in chapter 3, we have 
squabbling and complaining people who were being overlooked in the distribution of food to distract the church. So we're going to look at Act 6, the challenge of gospel community. What kind of problems come here? Practical, political, and very personal. It says here that um, the Hellenistic Jews among them were complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Now, that is a very serious problem in a church because it threatens to split it down the middle. What is a Hellenistic Jew? A Hellenist was someone who was quite Greek in their culture, in their lifestyle, in their posture. They were culturally quite Greek, but they were still Jews. But there were other Jews who were very strictly uh, aligned to Hebrew culture and would prefer the Hebrew language, and culturally Hebraic. And, and all of these people are in the same church. And these are the widows, the most needy people, and they don't get state benefits. So they really rely on that daily handout of food from the church. And, but look, some of them are being overlooked in this daily distribution. And for some reason, the uh, Hellenistic ones aren't getting the food. Now, that's very serious. Bringing these people together in the first place is a social challenge. There are people in a church with different backgrounds, different cultures, different ways of doing things, different ways of expressing themselves. Does that sound familiar? And here's the problem how it pans out. The Hellenists notice that our widows are being overlooked with the food and they start to complain. And that word means muttering in a low tone of voice. You know, food. Widows. Often it's behind the scenes talk. It's grumbling. And it's this very same word, deliberately, that was used in the Exodus of the Israelites grumbling in the wilderness against God's provision of food. And that is potentially explosive. We know the power of food. There's nothing more emotive than seeing poor women going without food, is there? Uh, but here in Acts, that woman over there has got a plateful. And my mother-in-law has got nothing. She's being, oh, I see, the Hellenists are being overlooked. Uh-huh. <laughs> and it looks like institutional racism. Now, that is potentially disastrous. It could rip the heart out of the young church. What do the leaders do? Do they go off and pray about it? Do they start preaching sermons against grumbling? Do they set up a Bible study? Interesting here, it's actually a management solution. Read what it says there. Verse 2, the 12 gathered all the disciples together and he said, it wouldn't be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Here's the solution. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom and we will turn the responsibility over to them and we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. They, they realize they can't do it all. They've got enough on their hands with the ministry of the word and prayer. But they know that this work, if the church is going to be stable and robust, has to be shared widely among others who also are full of the Holy Spirit and godly. And that will, that's a basically a management solution. Now what can we learn from this interesting window? The growing church will face challenges. That is a very encouraging thought to me and I hope to you too. We need to see this because the minute you start spending real time together as a community, what is going to happen? 
different sinners spending time together, rubbing their lives together. What's going to happen? Sparks will fly. Because you're not perfect. And I know I'm really not. What about the challenges of an international family church, which is what we are? My life group has people from Ghana, Nigeria, they're not going to join in, the Netherlands, China, and the UK. (laughs) It's like the UN. And as we settle into becoming real community together, we notice the delightful interactions between different cultures. How we pray is different. One African brother said to me, when he first came to this country and heard English people praying, he said, what is this prayer? Is it going to get higher than the ceiling? And now he realizes that God even hears boring English prayers. how we communicate. One African sister said this week, the English are the most polite people I have ever met. But what do they mean? (laughs) You know, our commitment to being polite means we're completely indirect. The Dutch, Anglo-Dutch company Shell had to create a guide for employees, Dutch employees working in London which had two, two columns, one side what the English say and the other side what the English mean. <laughs> English person says, that's a very interesting idea, very interesting. What they mean is, you're completely insane. <laughs> <laughs> I only realized how indirect we were by having an international staff team, an Australian, an Indian, an American, and a couple of Brits. Communication was incredible. How we do church. Some Indian friends at this church said that they struggled because our church felt too organized. They really struggled. It used to start, felt it just too organized, too tight. They're used to church just starting whenever and going on all day. And then there are some Brits who wanted to finish not one minute later than 12 o'clock. How was church today? Well, it was all right, but it finished at three minutes past 12. New York pastor Tim Keller shares about how Latino members of his church bring their friends and then apologize to them afterwards and say, no, no, he really does believe what he was saying. He's just not that passionate. So in an international family church, we haven't got just community tensions. We've got even more cross-cultural tensions. And what a joy that is. Now, let me say there's two ways we could, we could handle this. The first one is we can just make life easy. We all go and separate off into separate churches, okay? We have a Chinese church, a Nigerian church, a Ghanaian church, and a Dutch church. (laughs) He's joining in now. A Dutch church with one member, but very happy. We could do that. Or we could work together to create a tapestry that is very rich very diverse and international. Much more work, but much more glorious, especially to the outside world. My neighbors, for the most part, are very secular, liberal people. Most of them have never darkened the door of a church in their lives. 
the thing that really hits them about Grace Church when we can persuade them to come at Christmas is, wow, it's so diverse, so many people. That shows it really is inclusive. What a glorious thing. So which is better? You know the answer. Acts shows us a picture of the model church. Five things we should always strive for and be devoted to together. And it also shows us a picture of a real church where there are issues, tensions, mistakes, disagreements. And if that happened to the model church in Jerusalem, then it will happen to every church in history. And, and it does. So let's be real. But let's be hopeful for this church founded on the word of God, based on the gospel of Christ, and is filled with the Holy Spirit. We must also then pray for the peace and unity of church. And sometimes, as well as prayer, the solution to deal with our problems is a management one, a better way of organizing things, better systems, better communication. Get godly people onto it. Share the load of ministry together. We all need each other, and we need servant leaders who take stuff on and organize community life. Now, a practical application... We are now a church family of over 200 people. And we need to share the work of ministry more broadly. You heard earlier about a giving target. That's financial. But there's another kind of giving target that is equally important. And that's the giving of your time and your talents. Your time and your talents. I'll give you four examples. One, Grace Church needs new life group leaders. Our groups are growing. We haven't got enough leaders to take new groups on. Second, Grace Church needs people to serve in a finance team. A budget of £200,000 takes quite a lot of administration, number crunching, calculations about future projections, reporting to the Charity Commission so that we're righteous and fair and square with the government. That's a lot of work. We need more people in a finance team. Could it be you? Thirdly, we need people for the children and youth work. Every month, it seems, another baby crops up. Praise God. Last one was Tom Goodison. Looking forward to meeting him. Is he here today? He's here. What? Didn't see him. He's in the crash. Two-week-old baby. Another one. We need people to, to help serve in the children's the crash, the kids' club, the explorers. And we also need, fourthly, people to do them the least glamorous but most powerful job in the church, which is the sound desk, also known as worship support. Why is it the most powerful? This man sitting in front of me has <laughs> to switch me off or totally mess it up or create storms of feedback that means you can't concentrate on the words when you're singing. We've only got, we're down to two people on the desk. Could it be you? I'm just, this is really practical. Life group leaders, finance people, children's and youth work, worship support, just to mention four things. Will you prayerfully consider if you have something to offer in this season? This, I want to actually notice something that I've never noticed before. I heard, I went to Platt Church last summer, uh, on two years ago, on my sabbatical. I heard Paul Matoli, one of the vicars there, preach, and he, he pointed something out at the end of Acts 6, verse 7. Can you bring that, that slide up? This is really interesting. Acts 6, verse 7. Look at this. This is one of the marker points in the book of Acts. It shows that the thing's moving on to the next phase. So, the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests 
became obedient to the faith. Don't overlook that last clause. This is very significant. The priestly class were the ones who opposed Jesus. Their whole life was bound up in the temple. They saw Jesus as a threat. They were behind his crucifixion along with a number of others. Here in Acts chapter 6, we see that the priests, a large number, are coming to faith and coming into the church. Now, what is this off the back of? It's the back of, off the back of that management solution of the church being better organized. In other words, growth created problems, but created new areas of mission. The priests somehow got reached. It was a model church. It was also a real church. There's the beauty of community and the challenge of community. So what's going to motivate us in our very individualistic society to really get involved in community? I think the only motivation comes from the gospel itself. Jesus Christ gave up his home and family so that you could find one. He embraced the marginalized and offensive and called them family. He exceeded all traditional bonds of family, blood and culture to create a multinational church. He bought them with his own blood. He loves his church. Every single one is a precious person. And his glory is most fully displayed in the inexplicable love of Christians for one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. Let's pray that we can be a church like that. Shall we pray?